we began a conversation uh, a few weeks ago, probably, I guess, maybe four or five weeks ago, about significance. And let me just review, last week, our student pastor, Shay Vossler, just came and really knocked it out of the park and really uh, been thinking about, uh, is Jesus on the mantle or is he our mantle? Just really, has really stuck with us. We talked about it even in our, our, our Connect group yesterday. Just what a great, great message. So, um, so appreciative of our team, our staff. So uh, since we missed, uh, so we had a, a kind of a weak pause in this collection, let me catch you up, and especially if you're new, that you won't feel lost today. We understand that our culture around us, uh, it beckons us to be successful, and we, we search and pursue that success in many different ways, and yet when we get to the end of that pursuit, like we see in, in someone like Solomon's life in the book of Ecclesiastes, that is, it does not deliver the meaningfulness that we had anticipated, that the job, the house, the car, and all those things of success, uh, um, natural cultural success promised to deliver. Therefore, we determined that it was really a relational thing that brings us this sense of significance, and especially we feel significant when we feel seen, when we feel heard, and when we feel known. So those are progressive depths as you move into a relationship. We believe that each of our circles here at 360 and any relational circle that you might have, there's an expectation of what you can have in each of those circles. And if those expectations get off, then you'll be disappointed. If you come to a Sunday morning in a crowd and expect to be known, most likely you'll be disappointed. That is not, that is not the environment that you, can be, that you can really be known. So we say that we can, you can be seen here, and that is, our, that is what we're aiming for. We say on a Sunday morning, hey, good to see you. It's not good to know you uh, because there's no time for that. Or even to hear you on Sunday. That, would be, that might happen, but we can't guarantee that it would happen. Therefore, we move from the public arena where we're present in a crowd to a closer environment, a, a closer proximity into a group where you can actually, your voice can be heard. If you really want to be known, though, you've got to move to that level of privacy at a table for two. So on Sunday morning, we cross paths with one another. We say, hey, good to see you. When we come into a group of closer proximity, we're, we get to talk across a room. And then when we come to a private place, we get to talk across a table. So it's very natural. This is nothing spiritual, actually, uh, yet it really is uh, social. It's really relational. This is a natural level of relationships that we have, regardless if it's in the church, in your neighborhood, where you work. That's just how human beings work. We hit the 50-yard mark the last time we talked, and that 50-yard mark really turns the table each place, each circle, each relational dynamic, there's a requirement. In order to be seen, you've got to be present, right? I mean, you can't be seen if you're sitting at home right now. You can't be seen if you're still out in your car. There's a requirement. You've got to show up. There's a requirement to be heard. You've got to get in close proximity to be heard. And there's a requirement of being private, of being willing to kind of uh, uh, unshroud, unwrap yourself to have some transparency to really be known. But now the game is amped up because maturity is always about otherness. Maturity is not always about information 
And I feel like in our church culture, I feel that I always need to remind ourselves of that because we truly are an information-heavy uh, culture. Does information play into maturity? Of course. In other words, if you're going to be a, a mature scientist, you've got to study and get information to be a mature scientist. There's clear evidence in the Bible that we are to be studiers of the Bible, not just readers of the Bible. And very few people, unfortunately, go to that study level. But you can really uh, grow in, in your knowledge of Christ. But we do have to be careful that that doesn't become a substitute for what the information is engaging us to do. I can read a hundred books on how to love people, but if I actually don't do it, who cares how much information I have? Same with the Bible. I can, I can quote Bible verses all day long and seem like an expert in the Bible, but if I'm not kind and patient and long-suffering and all the things that the Bible is telling me to do, it really, truly doesn't matter how much information I have. So we want to make sure that we don't substitute Bible literacy for Bible engagement, that it's really engaging my life. Does this make sense? All right. True maturity comes then when we begin to think about others as much or more than ourselves, which by nature is one of the most difficult things that human beings can do. Without Christ in our life, it's impossible. It's just truly impossible. And the more we yield ourselves to God and his Holy Spirit, then the more that God begins to work through us and our self decreases and others increase. It will not happen on your own because there's this magnet in ourselves, this human nature that just wants everything in a me-centric culture. I don't think I have to say much more about that because I'm speaking not to a room of computers, but a room of human beings. And you know that as well as I do. So instead of just saying, I'm going to keep it at being seen and being heard and being known, now God calls us to see others, to hear others, and to know others. And I'm telling you, it is difficult because our life is so cluttered. My morning so far has been so cluttered by if I just went through the layers, you'd feel sorry for me, and I don't want you to feel sorry for me, so I'm just going to move on. But there have been so many layers this morning that have been nutty, crazy, weird, unusual, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, man, life, it's just about me right now. I don't care about you. I <laughs> and life has a way of doing that to us. I was just, uh, I was just um, thinking this morning, I put out a challenge a couple of weeks ago. I won't say show of hands because I want an awkward moment here. But I did challenge you because the last time we spoke, the challenge was to see someone in the crowd. We've been centering around Zacchaeus, and, uh, and Jesus went to a particular spot to see him. And so the challenge was, would you pick one person? Would you come to Sunday morning with a mindset of seeing, I'm going to see somebody else, and I'm going to notice them, and I, somebody I don't know or don't know well, and I'm going to remember their name. I'm going to come back the following week, and I'm going to say, hey, Kevin, hey, Mark, hey, Betty, whoever that might be, and I'm going to make them feel significant, and in making them feel significant, the paradox of the gospel is when I lose my life for the sake of Christ and for the sake of others, there's a deeper significance. 
See, we think only significance is coming when, I, when it's incoming. Like, wow, man, you really made me feel significant. But the paradox, the irony, the surprise of the gospel is we lose our life for somebody else. And we think, man, that was really significant. That, melt, that felt much more significant than me just receiving. Are you following? So I would say, uh, again, I'm not going to say show of hands, but for those of you who are sitting there thinking, ooh, I didn't do that, you've just proven how difficult it is to get into that mindset. Over the last several weeks since that challenge, I've taken selfies. It's my technique. Hey, let's take a selfie. I write the name down. I study the names on the way uh, to church, so I've given you my secret. It's not that I'm a name genius. I can hardly remember my name. It's, you know, there's, there, there's these techniques. And it really makes a difference. People don't feel like they want to they, they wanna be a number. I was reading this, uh, this acceptance letter from Arizona State University to a parent. And the president, it came from the president, I'm sure it was just you know, a generic letter with a stamped signature on it, but they made a mistake, and instead of putting the student's name... They actually put a social security number that was just made up, 987, uh, uh, you know, 987654321. They just put this out here for, you know, a nine-digit number for the, the social security number. And it's a dear parent, didn't even put their name. Congratulations on 987 admission to Arizona State University. We commend you for the significant role that you've played in helping him prepare for this exciting and critical important time. We are fully prepared to assist 987654321 in making a successful transition from high school. So the parent wrote a letter back and said, Dear Ms. Olson, I guess that was she was the president, thank you for offering our son 987654321, or as we affectionately refer to him around our home as 987. a position in the class at Arizona State. His mother, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and I are very happy, happy that he has been accepted. You see, people don't like to be called by a number and they don't like to be unknown and invisible, and you have the opportunity to do something very, very, very simple and make them feel seen. Now we turn our attention to something even more difficult, as these progressively get more significance and give significance, they actually get more difficult in the muscle that's required, and that is hearing somebody, listening to somebody. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot of clutter around us. There's sometimes so much clutter that when we're actually trying to listen to someone, I don't know if you ever caught yourself of thinking of what you're going to say before they actually finish what they're going to say. And that's, that's not so, you know, it's kind of, all right, so let me do a little exercise with you, all right? I need some participation here with all your robust, uh, you know, th full throttle uh, attention, all right? So I'm going to give you some math equations. One plus five? Six. Excellent. Thank you for the third of you that participated and for listening so well to me. Let's try it again. One plus five? Six. Four plus two? Six. Two times three? Six. Four plus two? 7 minus 1? 6. 6 minus 12? 6. Well, not really. <laughs> you fail. <Just. laughs> you see, you're assuming what I'm about to say. Here's what the Scripture says about listening. James chapter 1, verse 19. My brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, 
Proverbs 18, verse 2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding someone else, but only in expressing his own opinion. And when we listen, we're building each other up, as 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, therefore encourage one another and build each other up. See, this is maturity. It's not just what I'm getting out of it, but I'm building you up. Jesus came to Zacchaeus. He didn't come to see him and wave at him at a tree like, you know, a, a prince, you know, the princess wave. Uh, or, or the Pope way from the Pope mobile. You know, it wasn't one of those. Zacchaeus, great to see you. I'm important. You're not. He came to see and hear him. He came to hear a story that most likely had never been told. He came to listen to a guy that nobody wanted to listen to. And the Bible is full of those things. John, in his last chapter of his gospel, reminds us that not everything is written down. Not, all, not everything that Jesus said and did was written down. He said, otherwise the world couldn't contain those books. Obviously, wouldn't it be amazing to have the conversations that Jesus had one-to-one -one or in the group? We don't have those. That would be amazing if there was an unearthed a book that said the conversations of Jesus and in his group and how he listened. But we understand that when he sat down with Zacchaeus, there had to be some substantial listening going on at, at a level that had never happened in Zacchaeus' life. This is true in many instances, and we don't have, unfortunately, a lot of record of these conversations. But we do one, and that's where we're going to focus today in John chapter 4. We're going to land there for the entire morning. And this is Jesus at the woman at the well. Her social security number was 987-654321. We don't know her name. I bet Jesus did. But he heard her story. And I want to pull out of this the, the dimension that you see up here on the wall every Sunday. This is our mandate, pressing beyond ordinary relationships to reach extraordinary kingdom results. See, we believe that if you're able to press through past what is ordinary, and that's what we're talking about, it is not ordinary for you to come to a church on a Sunday morning with a mindset, I'm going to see one person and learn their name. That's, that's not ordinary. Ordinary is like, hey, man, I've had a rough week. and Oh, boy, do I need a message of inspiration. Man, I love singing together. Man, that, that, that's ordinary and good. There's nothing wrong with ordinary. I come to church for those reasons too. Pressing beyond that is maturity, where I'm going to press beyond my needs. I'm going to press into your needs. And so Jesus now is going to, to meet this woman at the well. And there's some interesting things about this story that press beyond ordinary that I believe we can glean from to inspire us to be mature. I'm going to trust you want to be mature. I'm going to trust that you don't want this whole thing to be about you. If you do, get out. Just kidding. John chapter 4, verse 1. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. They were becoming jealous. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but he, he already engaged his disciples to do the work of the ministry, but his disciples were baptizing. When, he, when the Lord learned of this because of the growing jealousy and danger, he left Judea 
and went back once more to Galilee, which was a place of safety and refuge for him historically. The next verse, John chapter 4, verse 4. Now watch this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now, I've studied Bible maps all the time, but every time I go to something like this, I've got to go look at the Bible map. I, I can't remember where, you know, you know, I know there's Judea and Samaria and Bradenton, and there's some, somewhere in there, right? So most of you probably don't know, okay, that doesn't mean anything, Judea, Samaria, and when you read that, you have to go through Samaria in order to get from Judea to Galilee. So when you're reading that, you think, okay, it must be. This is where a critic of the Bible could say, see, that's not true. That right there geographically is not true because there were other ways to get to uh, Samaria and, and specifically the city. So he came down to a town of Samaria uh, called Sychar and near the plot of Jacob, he had given his son. So we're given a very specific GPS. A critic of the Bible could say, well, that's not true. The Bible just said he had to go through Samaria. That it was a must, that it was a requirement to, from Judea to Galilee to go through Samaria. And somebody said, no, you could have gone around. There are different ways of getting there, so what's the deal? Is the Bible true? Yes, because you have to peel back the veneer of what you're reading in another language and understand that in the original language, it meant that when I must go to Samaria to get to where I'm going, it was a divine necessity. That's what it means. Listen carefully. It is a divine necessity that you become other mindful, mindfulness, mindingness, no, full, leg, <laughs> and that you become thinking, that you think about others more than yourself. It is a divine requirement. Why? Because this whole deal is that we're here on earth to give glory to God by being transformed into the image of Christ who gave himself for other people. And if we're not giving ourselves to other people, then we're not looking like Jesus, and we're not looking like Jesus, then we're not moving the kingdom, and we're not moving the kingdom, we're not giving glory to God. It's just about that simple. We dream of a church together that is other-minded. We dream of a church that is selfless. Thank God that we don't have a church that gets all upset about the color of the carpet and the walls and other. We've not had that in 13 years. Thank you, God, for that. We can actually get to the things of God so that we're not just tangled up in the things that human beings get entangled for and within. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 reminds us that it is God who works in you. Why? To will and act according to his good purpose. Other people will always be God's purpose. Always, 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 always. Watch this. I'm going to flip over to Zacchaeus for just a second. You don't have to turn there. When Zacchaeus, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. It is divinely required, same language. I must stay at your house. He didn't have to stay at his house. He could have had another house to stay in. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like, well, you're the only house around. I guess I got to stay at your house. No, I am divinely required to stay at your house, to descend on your house. I am divinely required to think about you, Zacchaeus, more than me in this moment and to listen carefully. So what does this mean? It is pressing beyond an ordinary view. 
An ordinary view means like, hey, we're together as a bunch of people. And a pressing beyond an ordinary view requires us to see what did God want from you for others on this morning. That's a divine mindset. I'm coming today, God. What's the assignment? How can I accomplish your assignment today? You see how that's not ordinary? Man, and do you see how it requires a lot of muscle? A lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of muscle because that magnet inside us wants it for you. What's best for you? It's the same passage, the uh, same word, wording that Paul used in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 13. Paul said, hey, Corinthians, if we are out of our mind, if you think we're fanatical, it's for the sake of God. And if we're in our right mind, it's for you, not us. For Christ's love compels us. I, I can't get away from it. There is a divine requirement. John chapter 4, verse 6. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, as tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the wells about the sixth hour. In other words, he could have had every excuse. I don't know about you, but when I'm that tired, I don't care about you. That's ordinary. That's ordinary. I take care of myself. But see, he had a divine view. He pressed beyond ordinary view. Now watch what happens. In verse 7 of John chapter 4, when the Samaritan woman came to drink water, to draw water, Jesus said, hey, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said, hey, um, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How can you ask me for a drink? See, because Jews don't associate with, with Samaritans. They don't eat together. They don't drink together. They don't talk together. They don't eat, go in the same house together. In other words, there was a divide, an ethnic divide here between the two. There was a historic divide. I could go into the history. I won't. But there was a historic divide. So when we come in close proximity of people... We were, we were taking note of that in our group yesterday, how different we are. We're different in ages. We're different in our thought patterns. We're different. And so we have to press beyond ordinary differences. See, when you look at the news and there's the left and there's the right, it's so obvious when they take a vote in the Senate. It's so obvious. That's ordinary. It's ordinary to vote along party lines. What's not ordinary is to say, I'm just going to be objective. What's ordinary is to say, you're rich, I'm not. You're black, I'm white. You're Asian, I'm Indian. That's ordinary. What's be, what is pressing beyond ordinary is I'm not going to just be ignore of that, ignoring of those differences. That's ridiculous. I'm going to embrace those differences. I'm going to learn from our differences. I'm going to I'm going to accept you and you're going to accept me and then we can have a relationship that makes a difference. You see? It's super, super critical. We press beyond our ordinary differences and it takes a time to do that. Otherwise, when I came to Christ, I was in a very multi-ethnic church. For those that know me close, I have a dream of that. Living in a city that is, does not have, in my opinion, a, a good mix between, ethnicis, between ethnic groups. And I have a dream because I got so much value in being with others 
that brought such richness of their culture to the table. I, I was reading this week that um, when people receive a gift card, 20% never cash it in. 20%. It represents $1 billion of uncashed gift cards. And I believe that's true when we're around people that are not like us. That if we don't get around people that are not like us, we, we, we don't cash in on the immense value. The immense value. If we're always seeking people that are like ourselves. We have pe we've had people say, well, I can't be in discipleship with that person because we have you know, very different beliefs. I'm like, perfect. Perfect. You're going to challenge each other. You're going to learn from each other. Finally, I want to say this. This is the last and final point, and it's a big deal. It's been a big deal for me personally, but it's a big deal. Forget, forget Steve. It's a big, big deal. And the big deal is pressing beyond ordinary conversations. What I find, and maybe you're the same, is that the vast majority, not the majority or slim majority, the vast majority of time, when I'm sitting with somebody, and maybe I'm meeting them for the, for the first time, I don't find the conversation pressed beyond ordinary. Where do you work? What do you do? How many kids do you have? And they're very close-ended questions, if, big if, even if they ask in the first place. I find that we have lost Something that is so valuable. And I told you a couple weeks ago, this is, this is simple. This is not spiritually profound, but we often trip over the simple things. Take somebody's picture, remember their dang name, and, and say it the next time you see them. And see what it does. See, it's not, you know, we don't have to understand the book of Revelation in order to do that. But it matters. Simple things matter to us as human beings. And I do believe that in a conversation, when people really ask, and they ask a follow-up question, and they ask a follow-up question, it makes a difference, right? When they're closed-ended questions, I'm gonna say it again, even if they ask anything. My wife and I, I forget to get in the car, I'm like, that's weird, they didn't ask us anything. We ask all the questions. I could tell you about their work, I could tell you about their family, I could tell you about their struggles, I would tell you about this, I mean, and it, and this treasure, I think, that, that this simple thing that we, we could risk losing if we haven't lost already. Here it is. You ready? One word. Curiosity. Yes. Yes. A curious spirit. I mean, a truly curious spirit. Not asking because you got to ask. Not asking because you're awkward, like, mm, who's your favorite football team? You know, who cares? Right? <laughs> or, or if you say, man, I'm going to Vegas. i got an uncle in Vegas. Okay, it wasn't about your uncle. I was just telling you a story. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about? That curiosity. Why are you going to Vegas? Well, I'm doing this. Well, what are you doing that for? Okay, I'm doing that for. Well, is it going to be hard? Well, it's going to be a little hard. What would you do the previous week? But, you know, some sense that you make the other person feel like you're remotely interested so that they feel significant. I'm kind of angry about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
These are not ordinary conversations. Jesus was willing to go there because he had a divine requirement. Not because he was a great conversationalist, probably was, but that wasn't his motivation. See, watch. John 4, 16, he said, hey, why don't you go call your husband back? What? We're talking about that? I have no husband. He goes, you're right, I know that. He's got a little bit of advantage than we did. <laughs> the fact is you've got five husbands and the man you're with right now isn't your husband. So yeah, what you're saying is true. Sometimes it's just this, this, this sense of finding this place. We don't know how long the conversation went, okay? So when you're reading Bible stories, you've got to be real careful. Like, wow, you went there fast. Well, you don't know. I remind you that he descended on Zacchaeus' house, okay? He descended. He spent the night, we think. Somewhere along the line, I believe wholeheartedly that the conversation with Zacchaeus went a little bit like this. Hey, man, how's your week going? Pretty good. He could see he's a little uncomfortable. Pretty good. Why? Because his week's full of cheating. You see, this is why I don't like the, the term accountability partner. Hey, you're cheating. Stop it. It's wrong. Okay, thanks so much. Rather than, tell me a little bit about your dad. I could never, ever meet up to my dad's standards. Never could. Why was that? Man, he was successful. And all my life, I tried to be successful like my dad. And I couldn't quite make it. And even when I achieved something, I couldn't get there. So what'd you do next? I started cheating. Why start cheating? Because I just want to hear my dad say, good job. That's all I'm looking for in life. See, so I don't know if that's the conversation, but I bet it went somewhere like that because he stepped out of the house, a changed man, wanting to do what's right and not having to do what's right. Somebody got down to his story. Somebody cared enough, not just to ask, hey, how's your week? But what was the hardest thing in your week? There, it's the way we ask questions. Watch this. Relational intelligence, if you're taking a notes, you want to read a great, great book, it's easy to read, Relational Intelligence, Steve Saccone. You'll see the name up here in just a second. Watch this. Steve writes, and Steve has become quite a friend. I just got text, text to him uh, from him a couple days ago. He wants to come and speak at our church. It would be really, really cool. Yeah. What are you saying about me? Let's go. Okay. <laughs> See, I went there. Uh, Steve writes these words, it is possible to increase our capacity to be interested in others by cultivating our ability to draw out the most interesting facets of another human being. If we want to be, become great story collectors, we must become great question askers. Man, that's so true. When you go through our discipleship track, with his permission, I've listed some of the questions he has in the book. 
to ask instead of say, how was your week? What was the toughest thing about your week? Instead of saying, where did you grow up? Who were the heroes in your life growing up? Who sacrificed for you? You ask me that question, I'll have tears running down my face because my father drank one soft drink a, a week. He drank an inch of it in a can, and it was probably some kind of uh, Walmart drink, cola. He drank an inch of it in a can and put cellophane and a rubber band over it every day of his work life so he could send his son to college. That's part of my story. Don't ask me where I grew up. Who cares? There's something more interesting down beneath our souls that if you ask, you make someone else feel significant. He writes this as well. Becoming interested in people is not about discovering facts or information about them, but exploring what drives their lives and what makes them different from you and what has shaped who they've become. You see? It matters. It matters, but it requires the muscle of otherness. I was reading this story about back in the day before we had refrigerators, they had ice houses. The ice houses were down on the ground, like typically, or they had very thick walls. They would take these chunks of ice from a river or a lake and you know, saw them out, and men would carry these and down to the ice house, and then they would cover the, all the ice was sawdust to kind of insulate it, and the ice would last for months. So these men had been working all day, and in the process, one of them lost his watch in, the, in this whole massive mix of ice and, and sawdust. So he called his friends. They all looked frantically, and man, they, it was just such a, it was a family heirloom, and it was just, it was a big deal for him. And so they, they kind of came in, they start frantically looking, they couldn't find the watch. Then this little boy had an idea, and he went to the, to, the, to the ice house by himself. He shut the door, he came out, he had the watch, the treasure that was buried somewhere. And they were all like, man, we're grown men, we were looking, 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 we looked forever. And he goes, what, what? they asked, how'd you find it? He said, well, I shut the door, I shut everything else out, and I laid down in the sawdust, and I listened. And I heard this little ticking, and then I went for it. You see, sometimes we have to take the time to shut everything else and quit asking, how you doing? And ask better questions. See, I think that's what happened with the woman at the well and with Zacchaeus, because it changed their life forever, and so can you. Learn a name. Clarence, Grace, good to see you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us feel significant, for others in our lives who have made us feel significant and be significant, God. And now it's our turn. This is maturity. This is what you call. This is the divine requirement that we must go to the house of Zacchaeus. We must go to Samaria. We must. God, can we begin today by just taking self-inventory and say, what's our level of must? What's our level of divine requirement in our life? What's that level of weight that we feel that, 
I must look at someone else. I must learn a name. I must hear another person's story. I must take some time to creatively think of better questions and to ask a follow-up question which has a follow-up question which has a follow-up question. God, that requires a lot of muscle on our end. And it seems so simple, and on one side, it's not theologically profound, and yet on the other side, it's at the core of all theology. Thank you, God, for listening to us, for hearing us, for taking the time with us by closing the door of the ice house and listening to the ticking of our heart. Father, I pray you'll strike us today with ordinary, make us feel uncomfortable with ordinary. We don't want to be ordinary believers, followers. We don't want our growth to be ordinary, God. We want it to be mature. So as we spend some time ruminating and worshiping, God, we're going to offer you a heart to, in our mind, our inner self, to, to reflect and how you would want to move us so that we have extraordinary kingdom results. Father, we always remember those who are seeking you, searching for you, pursuing you, may not even know that. And we remind ourselves that Jesus was the master of others, of otherness, who had a mindset for other people and to the point that he came and died for our sins so that if there's anyone who's together with us today and searching God, I will remind you in this time of prayer that Christ loves you so much that he gave his life for you. He was that other-minded. He was you-minded. He sacrificed me, himself, a me-mindedness on the cross. Why? Because he loves you so much that he wants eternal life that is a relationship of knowing him right here and right now and in eternity. It's not just about living with him in, in heaven. It's about knowing him now. And maybe that, maybe that strikes a chord in your heart. We're not a church that manipulates. We, we speak the truth, the gospel truth. And the gospel is this, that even though you're broken and fragmented and fractured and, and are a sinner like all the rest of us, Christ died for you to absorb every piece of guilt and shame and penalty for your sin. He became your substitute and died in your place that you might live with him and have a relationship with him. He came back from the dead so that he supernaturally can connect with you through the power of the Holy Spirit to ignite new life in you, to be born again, not to be religious, but to come alive. Is that you today? If it is, is a profound yet simple act of saying to God, I now depend on Christ's offer to me on the cross and not depend on my goodness, my religion, my trying to get it right in order to be right with you, God. And I want you in my life, Jesus. Maybe that's your prayer. Thank you, Father, for loving us. 
Thank you for wanting all of us, even when we're coming to Christ, that you very, very honestly say, I want all your life. This is not just a ticket to heaven. This is a, a following. This is a commitment. This is a, an allegiance to the heart of God. And maybe that's what you're looking for today. I know I am. Thank you, Father, for being other-mindedness. We love you. And as we worship God, speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.